Good morning and a warm welcome to everyone here. What a big crowd. Great to see so many faces. This is the seventh consecutive Royal Helen show that I have had the honour of attending as Cabinet Secretary for Rural Affairs and Environment in the Scottish Government. So I do like to view myself as the Minister for the Royal Helen show. Doesn't mean you can blame me when it rains, but I want to take all the credit when the sun shines as I was yesterday. It's been a really spectacular start to the show uh, this year. So it's my seventh consecutive show. Now, seven years is a blink of an eye in terms of the history of this great show. The Royal Highland and Agricultural Society of Scotland held its first show at Queensbury House back in 1822. Around 70 cattle were exhibited, 1,000 people attended, and the grand sum of £52 was taken at the gate. Humble beginnings. But all great stories start that way. It's perhaps fitting that the first ever event was held on the site that now occupies our National Parliament, because that's another great story. It's a story that involves each and every one of us in this room and everyone in Scotland. And it's you, the people of Scotland, who will choose how the next chapter in that story is written. Scotland's come a long way to be where we are today. Home rule movements down the centuries led to the debacle of the 1979 devolution referendum, the debate continued with the 1988 Claim of Rights and the 1997 referendum when Scotland voted yes for a Scots Parliament. So the Scots Parliament reconvened in 1999. We had a Labour Lib Dem coalition government, then an SNP minority government and now an SNP majority government with a mandate from the people to hold a referendum on independence. So clearly Scotland is on an exciting journey. And now on the 18th of September 2014, people in Scotland will vote on a straightforward question, the most important that we've had to decide in more than 300 years. Should Scotland be an independent country? Our current parliament, of course, has extensive powers over education, health, justice, and much more besides. However, many key decisions about our future are taken not by the people of Scotland, but, but by governments in Westminster. As an independent nation with the full set of powers and responsibilities, I believe Scotland can do much, much more. It's clearly a belief I've held for a long time. It's what motivated me to come into politics in the first place, and it's what's driven me as Cabinet Secretary over the past six years. I firmly believe Scotland's true potential has yet to be realised. And this isn't a debate about retaining the status quo. Scotland and our rural communities are going to change whichever road the people choose to go down. So it's a choice between two futures. One future where we lack the powers to transform Scotland, the power to stand up for ourselves in <coughs> crucial talks in the EU, affecting, for instance, farming, food and fishing. A future where the needs of Scotland are seldom, if ever, the priority of the UK government. And one future, the other future, where we can have normal powers and the responsibilities of an independent country. Independence is a normal state of affairs for almost 200 nations in the world today. So it's clearly an attractive choice given there were only 50 independent nations in the middle of the last century. And between now and next September, it's my hope that our rural communities will fully engage in the debate on our country's future. I want to hear rural Scotland's thoughts, questions and hopefully ideas about what new powers we could use to build a better future for our people. And I sincerely hope on referendum day people will base their final decisions after judging the case on hope, not fear. That people base their choice on reasoned debate and not wild claims and scare stories, 
And that's all our, our responsibilities. Of course, I do recall that in the run-up to devolution in 1999, we were told that a Scottish Parliament would cause the roof to fall in and scare off foreign investments. Well, the roof never fell in. Indeed, Ernst & Young's annual business attractiveness survey, published only two weeks ago, shows inward investment projects coming to Scotland are at their highest level for 15 years, and Scotland is ranked number one for inward investment outside of London. And the latest Labour stats show Scotland continues to outperform the rest of the UK on employment, unemployment and inactivity rates. Indeed, Scotland's economy has strength and depth. For every one of the last 30 years, we've contributed greater tax revenues per head than across the UK as a whole. And the latest official statistics show that we pay 9.9% .9 of UK taxation, but only receive 9.3% of UK public spending. I emphasise this to highlight the relative strength of our economy. Scotland should never, of course, rest on our laurels, but despite the tough state of the global economy, Scotland is punching above our weight. And the rural industries that we celebrate here at Ingleston or Royal Highland Show have driven that economic success. Scottish agriculture is a mainstay of rural Scotland, and our food and drink industry is absolutely positively booming. Exports are up by 52% since 2007, and our £4 billion whisky industry exports 40 bottles of whisky overseas each and every second. And I've heard some well claims about the impact of independence and what it will have on our successful food and drink industry. But you know, many businesses tell me that the biggest threat to our food and drink industry is indeed a forthcoming referendum. But it's not the one in 2014, but the UK's proposed referendum on EU membership in 2017. The real threat to Scotland's food and drink industry is if by remaining part of the UK we're taken out of Europe. David Cameron's in-out referendum threatens to deny our food and drink industry easy access to Europe's 500 million citizens and 20 million businesses. Not only that, there's a real concern in many sectors, in particular the whisky industry, that being outside of Europe will mean losing the backing of the EU's trade negotiations with countries like India, the US and China. UK would of course continue to seek access for French cognac and Italian wines, but no longer Scotch whisky. And it's not just the whisky producers that will lose out by remaining part of a UK that's outside of the EU. Scotland's farmers and crofters would see European funding dry up overnight. And it would not be replaced by UK funding because the Conservative and Labour Party south of the border want to end direct support completely and quickly. And just as any Scottish government of any political persuasion would make Scotch whisky a priority, so would supporting food and farming also be priorities. So I can tell you the Scottish government is quite clear, Scotland wants to be part of a Europe, and with independence, it's common sense that we remain part of Europe. Now our planned independence date is March 2016. Between referendum day in 2014 and independence day in 2016, Scotland will be negotiating independence whilst part of the UK and within Europe. The UK's own chosen expert on these issues, Professor James Crawford of Cambridge University, has given his view that it would be realistic to expect negotiations to have concluded by that date. Scotland would begin negotiations as a country which would be a net contributor to the EU budget <coughs> and whose people are already EU citizens. We'd begin these negotiations as a country which already applies the body of EU law and policy and we begin them as a country keen to be an equal and constructive party in the EU. 
I like the conclusion of the highly respected former BBC European correspondent Angus Roxburgh, who said in a recent article, what would any country gain by making Scotland leave the EU, wait a while and then rejoin? Out of sheer self-interest, every country would want to avoid such <coughs> pointless disruption. Scotland's accession would almost certainly be the smoothest and quickest in EU history. And I can say, speaking as a minister who's attended scores of EU negotiations with other member states in over the past six years, that every minister I speak to in Europe would warmly welcome Scotland to the top table. And I would argue that the rest of the UK will also benefit from Scotland having its own seat in the Council of Ministers. Scotland will of course be a helpful ally to the UK, who have a common interest, but clearly we'll have our own voice and priorities where we want to defend our national interest. <coughs> With the recent Irish and Danish presidencies of the EU, I have seen just how successful and influential small member states of Europe can be. And of course, with independence, we'd have more MEPs, a commissioner, and indeed we'd take a turn at the European presidency. We'd have a full role in the EU's formal, and importantly, the informal decision-making bodies. We could help set the agenda and better influence EU policy. So in short, our voice and influence would substantially increase. We all know the industries represented at this show, particularly our farmers, our crofters, our wider food sector, the environmental NGOs and other organisations, really are quite significantly affected by decisions taken in Europe. My six years in this job have taught me that we will have much to gain as a member state in our own right. Much of the talk amongst farmers and rural sectors at this show is how we need the best possible outcome for Scotland as we reach the final stages of the common agricultural policy negotiations. The difficulty is that Scotland's priorities are not the UK's priorities, and it's the UK ministers that represent us. Why else would Owen Paterson mention the EU sugar regime time and time again <coughs> rather than our livestock sectors at every Council of Ministers meeting during the current farming negotiations? And let me give you some more examples. To retain active agriculture, keep our land productive, maintain food production, safeguard our precious environment, remain competitive and maintain populations living in our more remote areas, the settled view of Scotland is that we need ongoing support from Europe. The UK position is to end direct support for Scottish agriculture. And to reverse the decline in livestock numbers, keep cattle and sheep in our hills, protect our red meat supply chain, to, and to produce for the domestic and export markets, Scotland wants the option of couple support. The UK position is that there should be no couple support. Scotland is demanding that our cast iron case for a fair share of the EU farming budget is recognised. After all, we received the fourth lowest level of direct payments in the whole of Europe. The UK's position is that the case has not been proven. Scotland has demanded an uplift in our rural development budgets. After all, we have the lowest budgets, not just in the UK, but the whole of Europe. But unlike the 16 other countries, the UK failed to negotiate a special uplift or fairer share for Scotland. <coughs> so the UK government is certainly backing the No campaign. Every time a rural community is asked for support or fairness, they say no. So it's all a question of priorities. The UK's priorities are different to ours here in Scotland. It really is as simple as that. For agriculture, in particular our livestock sector, indeed as a farmer said to me yesterday, Scotland has 85% less favoured area and the winters seem sometimes they can last for up to eight months in some parts of Scotland. That's why we need support. <coughs> we have distinctive needs. 
we have distinctive, distinctive farming. But as he said to me, the UK ministers just don't seem to get it. The same goes for food and drink. It's many times more important to the Scottish economy than the UK's. Food and drink is many times more important to our economy than to the rest of the UK. The same, of course, applies to fishing. 70% of the quotas come to Scotland. It's many times more important to Scotland than the whole of the UK. So put simply, our rural industries are a big priority for Scotland, but not the UK, and thus we should perhaps not be too surprised that the UK negotiates such poor deals for Scotland and Europe. But with independence, it would be very, very different. We, have, we would have the ability to better articulate, assert and protect our vital national interest and pursue our own priorities that we agree here in Scotland. The status of independence itself would deliver a better deal for rural communities and better <laughs> budgets, and importantly, and better budgets. It's hard to believe, given our own very low budget allocations, that despite having less than 25% of the agricultural land of the UK, the Irish have just provisionally negotiated a €2 billion Euro allocation for rural economic development. <coughs> if you calculate what we think we may get, although we're waiting for final figures for rural development funding, this is not direct payments to farms, this is rural development funding, we reckon the Irish could have around four and a half times the size <coughs> of our budget here in Scotland. And Ireland's a country the size of... <coughs> That's a country, Ireland, the size of Scotland, but it's securing the equivalent to 85% of the total allocation of the UK. Just think about that. Ireland, size of Scotland, is securing the equivalent of 85% of what the whole of the UK is getting. And believe you me, you can look at the figures in your own time. Other small nations have achieved similar outcomes in Europe, but not Scotland. So our rural economy is paying a heavy price for being part of the UK. If Scotland had been independent and the latest cap budget was being decided, we would have benefited from a rule that says that by 2020, no member state would receive less than an average of €196 Euros per hectare in direct payments for their farms. So that means being part of the UK at the moment will cost our farmers and crofters €1 billion, Euros, yes, €1 billion, Euros, between 2015 and 2020, for the simple reason we are not a member state. And as if that was not bad enough, the UK's refusal to secure a fairer share of the rural development funding is likely to cost Scotland hundreds of millions of pounds of euros as well. That could have funded business start-ups, could have helped young farmers, helped more infrastructure investments in broadband renewables, more investments in rural tourism and environmental schemes. And you know that with every one pound of output from the agricultural sector, it generates an extra 80, 80 pence in other parts of the Scottish economy. So the whole of the country is losing out. And just as we need the powers of independence to pursue our own priorities in Europe, we need similar powers to transform our, our rural communities in many other ways as well. A key priority for Scotland is to capture the benefits of the huge, the enormous abundance of natural resources on our own doorstep here in Scotland. Resources which should, should help build vibrant and prosperous rural communities. Ladies and gentlemen, Scotland has won the natural lottery. We have land, water and energy resources in abundance, resources that are set to rocket in value in the 21st century and which can sustain thousands of new jobs for future generations. Our rural communities are sitting in a goldmine of opportunities. 
Our renewable energy resources alone are the envy of the world. But we know we need control of energy regulation, for instance, to maximise the benefits of the bounty of renewable energy. And the significant <coughs> revenues from our growing onshore winds, offshore winds, our wave and tidal sectors, should benefit our communities, <coughs> our communities here in Scotland, not the UK Treasury. Independence will, of course, deliver the Crown Estate to Scotland, which will help make that happen. And when, unlike the UK, Norway had the good sense to build an oil fund now worth £450 billion, let's have the good sense here to avoid making the same mistake again. And just as we need independence to connect our people to the riches that will flow from our natural resources, so we need independence to connect our communities to each other and to the rest <coughs> of the world. Everywhere I go in Scotland, people and businesses in rural Scotland tell me that the, the good, bro good bro broadband connection will make a world of difference to their lives and to their businesses. So a Scottish Parliament with control of telecommunications policy would prioritise the needs of rural Scotland. If the Westminster government placed more priority in achieving greater coverage when auctioning the 2G and 3G licences, we would today have much better broadband and mobile services in rural Scotland. For next generation broadband, Scotland is around, at, uh, around 48%, 48%, lagging behind many, many other countries, like Norway, who've already achieved 77%. In Sweden, they auctioned their 3G mobile licences to maximise coverage, ensuring good services to all their communities, securing 98% rural coverage. So that is why an independent Scotland would have the option and I'm sure we would do this, and I commit to doing this, to consult on options of how we could issue future Spectrum licences to ensure these services work for all of Scotland and not just our urban areas. And it's not just about connecting via email. If the Westminster Government had opened up competition within the parcel sector in a way that required private operators to deliver at fair prices to all parts of the UK, we'd have better parcel service deliveries for rural Scotland as well. And speaking as a rural MSP, common complaint from the small businesses in my constituency are the rocketing costs of parcel deliveries compared to what it is in urban communities. And of course, it's also about fuel prices. Higher fuel prices in rural and remote areas ramp up costs for goods and services. For example, compare the 135.9 pence per litre of unleaded petrol in Edinburgh to the staggering 153.9 pence in places like South Uist. So collectively, the lack of priority attached by the UK government to rural issues has over many years stifled opportunities, increased the cost of living, perpetuated remoteness and contributed in some places to depopulation. An independent Scotland would have the full range of tax at its disposal to boost growth, address inequality and stabilise and support the rural economy. It would also have non-fiscal levers such as competition and regulation policy which would be used to meet the specific needs of Scotland especially rural Scotland. We could aim to ensure services are delivered to maximise coverage and fairness, again, across all parts of Scotland. So just imagine for a second or two, post-yes vote, with independence having just arrived, just imagine sitting round a table, knowing we had the power to use taxation, telecommunication, energy and competition policy, to work out how we can best deliver greater prosperity for rural Scotland. I think, I believe, we would take different and better decisions
the new key ministers in London. Because the best people to take decisions about Scotland's future are the people who choose to live and work in Scotland. Better services, better infrastructure can empower rural Scotland. And so, of course, can providing rural communities with more of a share of the assets on their own doorstep so they can shape their own destinies. Assets such as land. In just 20 years, communities have taken ownership of half a million acres of land in Scotland. These communities have shown that depopulation can be reversed, businesses created, and homes built in places where those things were long believed to be impossible. They've also developed their own renewables resources in ways that can serve a local purpose. These are successes that explain the Scottish Government's commitment, for instance, to doubling between now and 2020 the amount of land and community control. When assets are community-owned, people get a newfound self-assurance that comes from taking charge of what's around you. So that applies to communities, but of course, it applies to countries as well. We need to be able to empower our country, so in turn, we can empower our communities. The referendum debate allows us to ask ourselves, when we want to put communities more in charge of shaping their own destinies, why is it too much control lies elsewhere? Why are we not enjoying the benefits of the vast natural advantages this country has, but instead we have far too many people suffering from rural poverty? Why is it with all our riches our people are not reaping the benefits of rural economic development? And why do too many parts of Scotland, rural Scotland, continue to suffer depopulation? And how can we address the challenge of demographic change? Demographic change which is going to bring huge challenges for rural communities in the decades ahead. And all that means for the delivery of rural services in the coming decades. So I firmly believe that the decision Scotland makes next September will determine to what extent we are able to overcome these challenges. We need decision makers that act on rural Scotland's priorities. The UK Parliament has the powers, but not the priorities. The Scottish Parliament has the priorities, but not the powers. Just imagine, just imagine what could be achieved for rural Scotland if the Scottish Parliament had the powers to act on our priorities. Our current constitutional arrangements are a roadblock to fundamental change. The change we need to secure the very brightest future for ourselves, for our children and for future generations. When you look around the showground, it's clear the Scottish countryside is full of potential, as are other parts of Scotland. If we speak for ourselves, take responsibility for the decisions that affect our, our lives and our economy, if we harness the creativity, the genius, the innovation, the hard work, the entrepreneurship and the can-do attitude our rural and land sectors represent and are famous for, then I firmly believe we can truly transform the future of rural Scotland. Others may talk of peril, risk and danger, but we'll still be in a social union with the rest of the UK, our closest neighbours. They'll be our friends as well as our closest neighbours and we'll work together on many, many issues. So let's devote our energies to the big ideas that will deliver rural Scotland a big, big future. In September 2014, we can secure the powers to make that happen. So whatever your views, whatever your views may be today, it's an exciting time to be in Scotland. It's an exciting time to be alive. So I urge you all to join the debate, enjoy the ride, as Scotland prepares to take our biggest decision in 300 years. Enjoy the debate. Thank you very much.